Leviticus chapter 16, if you want to open there this morning, Leviticus 16. Not sure how much all of you are into sports and into football, but Seahawks didn't do too well last Sunday. In fact, they, uh, they remind me of a, of a story that Frank passed along to me. I mention that only because if it offends you, you can talk to him after the message. <laughs> a story about a, a young kid who was in, uh, up before a judge because his parents had been beating him. And as he was before the judge, the courts were trying to figure out what to do with him and, and where to place him. And normally they place a child like that with someone the closest relative. And so the judge told this, this boy, I'm going to place you with your aunt. He said, oh no, don't place me with her. She beats me too. She's worse than my parents. And he said, well, okay, I, then we'll place you with your grandparents. No, no, don't place me with them. They're where the problem started. They beat me too. And so the judge thought for a moment. He said, well... Son, who, who do you want me to place you with then? He said, well, the Washington Huskies. <laughs> they don't beat anybody. <laughs> you Huskies fans, I'm sorry, but like I said, talk to Frank. <laughs> but last Sunday, the Seahawks didn't do too well either, did they? It came down to the end of the game. You may have watched it at the very end, and it came down basically to two field goals that determined the outcome of the game. Two kicks, two players, if you will. For a moment, consider what these two players must have felt, must have been going through in those last few minutes of the game. Josh Brown. For the Seahawks. He steps up. No time left. The game is tied. 47 yards out. And Josh Brown nailed a soaring, arcing, graceful, beautiful kick right into the left goalpost. Point. They went into overtime. And for the Redskins then, it was rookie kicker Nick Novak. Nick Novak stepped up and with a 39-yard kick won the game. Brown went home the GOAT. (laughs) Novak went home the winner. And yet if you think about it, it so often happens that way in sports. Someone hits the winning basket, someone runs the winning touchdown, they they get the final goal, and they're the hero of the game, and yet it didn't rely on them to get that goal. That wasn't the point. If the team hadn't done well enough to get to a point where they could win the game by then, it wouldn't have mattered. It's an issue of the whole team, the whole problem. Seattle had played better the first half. Their kicker wouldn't have gone home a goat. But you've got to have someone to blame. That's what, the way we are. That's what human nature is. We've got to have someone to blame. If there's a hurricane, it's the president's fault. You've got to blame somebody. Who's to blame? 9-11, how unbelievable. Within days after that, that everybody was talking about whose fault was it. <laughs> Hello, Al-Qaeda? <laughs> Whose fault was it? Someone to blame. A scapegoat. That's what we're looking for. Someone on whose shoulders we can lay the responsibility of the loss. Someone just like Jesus. And Jesus, the realization from our study this morning is so stunning. It's so amazing. I pray that we don't just skip over it. I pray that we recognize that every single one of us deserves to be the GOAT. That we have earned that place. We've played the game in such a way that we should go home 
scapegoats. But you took our place, didn't you, Lord? And I praise you and I thank you for this. And I pray, Lord, this morning as we study these things, if there is anybody here who is putting the blame on themselves or trying to shove it off with guilt onto someone else, Lord, would you help us all recognize that you took the blame, the guilt, the sorrow on your shoulders. That you walked out our suffering. That you took our penalty, our stripes. And by them we are healed. Thank you, Lord. Give us grace to understand your words now. And Holy Spirit, be our teacher in Jesus' name. Amen. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 29. The Lord speaking to Moses as He does through most of the book of Leviticus. You may recall, the book of Leviticus contains more spoken words of God than any book in the Bible. Every time you look down and see those quotation marks, it's because the Lord is still speaking, still telling Moses what to do, how to handle things, explaining, describing holiness. And in verse 29... The Lord says, This shall be a permanent statute for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall humble your souls and not do any work, whether the native or the alien who sojourns among you. For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you, and you will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Let me read that one more time. This shall be a permanent statute for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall humble your souls and do not and not do any work, whether the native or the alien who sojourns among you. For it is on this day that atonement, Kippur in the Hebrew, Yom Kippur, atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. And you will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. This coming Thursday is Yom Kippur. It marks the highest, holiest day on the Jewish calendar year, called the Sabbath of Sabbaths, or more familiarly, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. We're in between a couple of Jewish holidays, Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, which was last week, and now Yom Kippur coming up this week with a 10-day span in between. If you're here Wednesday night, you remember we talked about this. In those 10 days, those 10 days are called the Awesome Days. The awesome days. For there are ten days spent in repentance and preparation for the coming of the Day of Atonement. The Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah, that afternoon, Jews around the world, Orthodox Jews will go out with breadcrumbs to bodies of water. And they will throw the breadcrumbs out onto the water as a way of tossing out or casting their sins into the sea. They're preparing, repenting, getting ready for atonement that happens on Yom Kippur. On that day in Israel's history, the high priest removed his usually glorious garb. He put on simple linen garments, and then he made atonement, first for himself, for he needed his sins to be cleansed, and then second, for the people and for all Israel. Leviticus chapter 16 and 17 describes the entire process, and we'll look at that in depth on Wednesday night. But there's a sacrifice that's unique to the Day of Atonement, involving two goats, one of which gives us the origin of the term scapegoat. When you look back at verse 5 of Leviticus 16. Verse 5 tells us that he, the high priest, shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. 
Then Aaron shall offer the bull for the sin offering, which is for himself, and he shall make atonement for himself and for his household. Then he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord, and the other got a lot for the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell, and make it a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, to send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. Let's get down to verse 20. Verse 20 tells us when he finishes atoning for the holy place in the tent of meeting on the altar, he shall offer the live goat. Watch how he does it. Verse 21, Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. He shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land and he shall release the goat the goat in the wilderness. Two goats. One offering. And you need to remember that. It's important in understanding what's going on here. This is one offering that involves two animals. One was sacrificed to the Lord, a blood offering. The other was driven out into the wilderness, having had all the sins of Israel laid on its head by the high priest, passed along to the goat, that goat is driven out into the wilderness, but both together, together were the sin offering. Not two sin offerings, one sin offering, two goats. With that understood, we can look a little more closely at this fascinating offering. Look again back at verse 8 and watch this. Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats. One lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. For the scapegoat. Webster's Dictionary defines scapegoat as one that bears the blame for others. One that is the object of irrational hostility. Who fits that picture better than Jesus? Who bore the blame and was the object of irrational hostility. Can you grasp that picture in your mind of the people calling for the crucifixion of this man of peace, of this healer, of this teacher, of this lover of our souls? Crucify him, they shouted. Irrational. It made no sense. Even to be present in the moment, the people caught up in in the revelry of the wickedness that was going on, it didn't make sense. Irrational hostility. But there's more to this scapegoat. This one requires a little digging and a little thinking. There are two possible definitions for scapegoat in the Hebrew, depending on how you divide the word. And it kind of can go both ways. The word is azazel. Azazel, if you want to spell it out in your notes, it's A-Z-A-Z-E-L, Azazel. Or E-Z-A-Z-E-L, Azazel, okay? Now that's important to understand because there are two ways to split the word and to understand its meaning. The first way is you split it between the E-Z and the last Azel at the end. E-Z or Ez meaning goat, Azel meaning to remove or to withdraw. And so, scapegoat, in some of your margins, it might even say he was the goat of removal. The goat that would take the sins and remove them from the people out into the wilderness. The goat as removal, as all. Goat of removal. It makes perfect sense in the context of the scriptures here because this goat was removed from the people. But there's another way to look at this name. It can be split another way. 
If you split it between the second Z and the E at the end, Azaz El. Azaz El, which means strong one of God. Strong one of God. Strong one of God. Listen to this. Kyle and Delich wrote in their commentary on the Old Testament the words in verse 8 quote one lot for Jehovah and one for Azazel one lot for Jehovah one for Azazel for that's how it would read require unconditionally that Azazel should be regarded as a personal being in opposition to Jehovah now think about this what personal being who was once considered a strong one of God fell into opposition with Jehovah. Satan did. Azazel. Satan. Isaiah chapter 14 verse 12 says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You who have been weakened, who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. And Kyle and Delich going on say, The devil himself, the head of the fallen angels, who was afterwards called Satan, for no subordinate evil, no subordinate evil spirit could have been placed in antithesis to Jehovah as Azazel is here. But only the ruler or head of the kingdom of demons. The kingdom of demons. One lot is cast for Jehovah. One lot is cast for Azazel. Satan. The high priest was to cast the lots. One goat was sacrificed to Jehovah. A blood offering. An atonement. To provide covering for the sins of Israel. Covering because it wasn't complete. It only covered them for a short time. They had to do it again every year and every year. Over and over. But one goat. One lot for Jehovah. Another lot for Azazel. And watch this, the second goat was sent out into the wilderness. What happened in the wilderness? Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Matthew 4, 1, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. But the Bible also mentions that the desert and desolate places tend to be dwellings of evil spirits. Dwelling places of evil. So if you live in Las Vegas, <laughs> Matthew 12, verse 43, Jesus said, Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless or dry and arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Biblically, the desert is often a picture of that place of being outcast, that image of death and desola- desolation. And in fact, it was assumed that the scapegoat driven out into the desert would die out there. So are you saying that the scapegoat represents Satan? No. And this is where we've got to be very clear. The scapegoat does not represent Satan. The scapegoat represents Jesus. But so did the sacrificial goat. Remember, two goats, one offering. Jesus gave us one offering, an offering of blood sacrifice, but also becoming the scapegoat, bearing all the sins and taken off where? To the pit. When Jesus died. He went to the pit. Jesus is our sin offering. Think this through for a moment. Jesus, number one, Jesus atoned for our sins. 
He atoned for our sins. Atonement is the Hebrew word kapur from Yom Kippur. It again means covering and that's what the blood does. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. It is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Atonement. Now I've told you before, you may recall, atonement is not a word that you can find in the New Testament. Oh, my NIV says atonement. Yeah, well, it mistranslated. (laughs) It's an Old Testament word because it means covering. And Jesus doesn't just cover our sins. He does much more than that. The thing about a covering is it implies something that's covered can just as easily be uncovered. I've watched my dad out and back trying to cover up his boat. And then a strong wind comes up and he's trying to cover it. He's down at one end and off the covering comes right on top of him. Only happened a couple times. He got control of it. He's a man's man. But if you're covered, you can be uncovered. I'm covered by the blood of Christ. Well, then can you be uncovered? If all you've been is atoned for, yes. But Jesus does so much more than simply atone. Or Rick Wayman, are you saying that Jesus' blood is not enough? Actually, it's more than enough. It's more than we could ever need. For the full picture of Christ's sacrifice is different than the Jewish sacrifice which simply brought atonement, literally simply put off for a year their sins and their punishment. That's all it really did. Held God at bay. His judgment. Their atonement. But Hebrews chapter 9 verse 11 tells us when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say not of his creation, and not through the blood of goats or calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal, not atonement, redemption. Redemption. For the, if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And that's where the second goat comes in. God is painting pictures here. Remember this with all of these offerings, all of these sacrifices, all of the festivals of Israel. Each and every one of them point to Jesus. Every one of them were graphic pictures in some way, shape, or form of the character, the nature, the person, or the actions of Jesus Christ. Every one. It's absolutely stunning to look at this. But the second goat... Jesus not only atoned for our sins, as with the sacrifice of the first goat, but in the scapegoat, Jesus abolished our sins. Abolished our sins. He carried our sins away to a place they can never, never return. Look at uh, chapter 16, verse 21 again. Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat, confessing over the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. That must have taken a long time. And he shall lay on them, or lay them on the head of the goat, and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. The sin of Israel laid on the head of the goat. The goat driven out into the wilderness, never to come back. That was the idea that this goat would never be seen again. Later on it's told in Jewish tradition that the goat would be taken out to a high cliff by the person taking him out to the wilderness and pushed off, assumed to be killed on the rocks below. 
Psalm 103 verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And some of you need to believe that this morning. Some of us are not quite sure. Oh, he removed my sins down to the end of Duckin. <laughs> he removed my sins as far as Anacortes. Or down to South Whidbey. Oh, he removed my sins from the state of Washington, but they're out there lurking somewhere. I still bear some guilt. There's still something I know is going to catch up with me. No, all of your sins from the east to the west, you cannot track them. They're gone. Abolished. History. And have no power over you. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4 But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and listen to this and raised us up with Him and seated us past tense and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus we're already there we are looks to me like we're in a barn Rick it's a proleptic phrase. Proleptic is simply a word that means something is so absolutely assured to happen that it's spoken of as if it's already happened. You are already seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. You have already been raised up, but I'm right here. But God sees you as already having been raised up. That is how assured your salvation is in Jesus Christ. That is how abolished your sins have become. They can't touch you. They cannot keep your feet shackled. Jackie, where are you? They can't keep your feet shackled to the ground. When He calls, you go. Because your sins have been abolished by the blood of Christ. Gang, there are no losers in Christ. There are no goats at the end of this game in Christ. No scapegoats because Christ became the scapegoat, atoning for our sin and abolishing our sin completely. He did both. That's why they needed two goats. You couldn't explain this with one. You couldn't sacrifice a goat and then send it out into the wilderness. It wouldn't work. You couldn't send it out in the wilderness and say, Hey, quick, go get it. We still need a sacrifice. Two goats, one sacrifice. It's what Jesus did. He atoned for us and He abolished our sins once and for all. Now, for some of you, this is brand new good news. And I want you to know clearly what Jesus' death on the cross means. It just means the abolition of our sins. It means that you can stand righteous before God whether you feel like it or not. You have been covered and saved and cleansed completely. And Jesus has become your willing scapegoat, bearing your blame and becoming the object of a rational hostility. But you Christians may be sitting here thinking, Okay, I got it. <laughs> I understand. We've talked about the blood so much in this book of Leviticus over and over. I told you ahead of time we were going to talk a lot about the blood. It is the primary substance in this book. It's the key substance. Blood is. The key word is holiness. The two tend to go hand in hand. But listen. There's a reason this morning that I mentioned in connection to all of this the name Azazel in connection with Satan. And here it is. Christians, listen up. We tend, as people of faith, to ascribe far too much power and authority to Satan. We tend to fear him far too much. We tend to worry so much about what Satan is doing in this world. Well, so Rick, are you saying we should blow him off? No. We should be aware of the enemy and know what he's up to. But to fear him, to shudder, 
to worry, to stress, to doubt. These are not things of the Father. These are tools of Satan that he uses and uses very well. Gang, he is the adversary of God. He is not the opposite of God. It's not like the the Asian yin-yang, you know. God is perfect good and Satan is perfect evil and boy, I hope God wins. Because it's it's a a toss-up. It's going to take a final field goal. Hope one of them get it. Hope it's God. (laughs) That's not how it works. Satan just happens to be about as far away from God as you can get in terms of evil. But he does not have the power of the Lord. Satan is a created being. God is the creator. God has all authority. Satan has minimal. Jesus is the prince of peace. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. (laughs) And Christians, he's got nothing on you. Nothing on you. And yet as believers, you go, oh, I'm just feeling so guilty right now because of what happened, you know, 12 and a half years ago. What I did, I I can't let it go. And Satan's going, yeah. And the Lord's going, let what go? I don't even remember what happened to you 12 and a half years ago. That was wiped away. Satan's having a field day. Gang, he is slick, and he's slithery, and he's deceptive and cunning. But in reality, Satan's greatest tool against you is simply fear. Hayden and I were watching, actually our whole family, watched The Karate Kid the other night. It's a great movie. You The Karate Kid, you know. So cool. And we got done with the movie, and I, I went down to tuck Hayden into bed, and we're talking for a few minutes, and we had this, I love the, the conversations with children, because you get these stunning revelations. And we're talking, and, and Hayden, you know, he had his, had his little headband wrapped on, and he was going to sleep in it, and he looked really cool. And, you know, we just had a Karate Kid pillow fight in the living room. And we're there, there before his bed, and before we prayed, Hayden goes, Dad, do people ever fight with their eyes closed? I said, no, son. Don't, don't go to Taekwondo and close your eyes. It's not a good idea. And then we bowed our heads, closed our eyes, and began to pray, and that's when it hit me. Yeah, we do fight with our eyes closed. That's exactly what we do. We enter into prayer. We come before the Father, and we are engaging in spiritual warfare. And we're fighting with our eyes closed, which is the only place I can think of that you would do something like that. You wouldn't enter into any other ring and close your eyes and go, all right, where are you? I got you. But we bow, we close our eyes in prayer. Why? Because we trust the Father. He's the one who's got the power. He's the one who's got the fist. He's the one who will take out the enemy. He's the one who puts down all of the wiles of Satan, not us. And He is our Father. He has that authority. I want you to flip in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6 this morning, just for a few more minutes. I have been thinking about this a lot lately. It has come up over and over, over in numerous ways, in numerous conversations, spiritual battle, spiritual authority, what Satan is trying to do, especially to dampen the spirits of people connected right here at the bridge. And Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, listen closely to what Paul says, what he describes. Listen to how it applies. Let me get in verse 10. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, Paul says, be strong in the Lord. And, put, and in the strength of His might, put on the full armor of God, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Is the devil a real person? Well, according to Paul, he is. According to Jesus, Satan is not just a vague, ethereal force. He is real. 
He is active. He's involved in the things of this world. Verse 12, For our struggle, Paul says, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. This is like Lord of the Rings stuff. It's very cool. Verse 13, Therefore take up the full armor of God, that you will be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. How do we do that, Paul? Verse 14, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. And that circled in my Bible. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And he goes on, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Verse 18, with all prayer and petition. Pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. This list includes some great things. Seven different things. Truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, the word of God, and prayer. Paul says, these are your implements of war. These are your battlements. These are your weapons. Take hold of these and use them. You know what this list does not include? It doesn't include fear. It doesn't include worry or doubt or cowering. It doesn't include despair. That one's missing too. Along with fretting and shivering and hiding and discouragement. These are all tools of the enemy. And if one of these is at work in your life, then you've got the wrong weapon in your hand. Because God has called us to fight with truth. And righteousness and peace of the gospel. Faith. The word of God. Prayer. These are the things of the Lord. Now, to be sure, Satan's going to throw all these other issues at you. Fear, worry, doubt. All these things. He'll throw them your way. Disease. He's going to throw it your way. Problems at work. Problems at home and the family. Relationship struggles. He's going to chuck it all your way. Emotional distress. Despair. But gang, it is your choice. Listen to me. It is your choice whether or not you want to wear them. Do you want to wear Satan's? Armor or the Lord's? I want to make three quick suggestions and we're done this morning. Three suggestions for facing the enemy. Three ways to do it, three ways to deal with him. Number one, when Satan reminds you of your sin, remind him of your covering. When he reminds you of your sin, remind him of your covering. Satan, I am covered by the blood of Jesus. You have no authority here. The blood of Christ has cleansed me. 1 Peter 1.19 You were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless. The blood of Christ. His blood covers completely. It soaks in. Never to be removed. Then if you find yourself weak or sick or worried or stressed, plead the blood of Jesus. Plead the blood. Lord, your blood covers me. I need your blood. I need to plead this now. In the face of the enemy who is attacking me, I am covered by Jesus' blood, that precious blood. And you might say, plead the blood. That sounds a little like something I might hear on TBN. Listen, you realize that Paul indicates that there was a physical connection between sickness and a person taking communion without recognizing the blood of Christ? 
He says in 1 Corinthians 11.29, He who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Paul tells the Corinthian church, Hey, you got some problems going on. You've got disease and death happening in your fellowship. Why? You're not recognizing the blood of Christ when you take communion. It is the blood. It is the blood that protects us. There is power in the blood. So when guilt or fear of spiritual attack comes, when Satan reminds you of your sins, you remind him of your covering. You are covered by the blood. Number two, when Satan reminds you of your sin, tell him he can have them. Well, Rick, you did this, huh? Yeah, it's all yours, buddy. Take it and run with it. Have a field day. You want my sins? They're all yours. The whole point of the second goat driven out into the wilderness, the sins of Israel were stamped, paid in full on the head of the goat. And out it went, taking their sins out where? To Azazel. God gets the blood sacrifice. Satan gets the baggage. I like that. I don't want to carry my baggage. I want Satan to have it. Take it. There you go. Let him drown in it. When Satan reminds you of your sin, tell him he can have them. Kyle and Della said the goat was to take back the sins which God had forgiven his congregation into the desert to Azazel, the father of all sin. As a proof that his evil influences upon men would be of no avail in the case of those who had received expiation from God. My sins, my guilt, I don't want them anymore. Satan can have them. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil and he will. Number three, when Satan reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. Which is just one of my favorite sayings. Now I didn't make that one up. When Satan reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. Revelation 20 verse 10 says, The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. What's that mean? We'll find out in our Revelation study verse 20, which we should get to in about four or five months. And, and he says, They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It's the one time, it's the one person who it's appropriate to tell to go to hell. It's Satan. Because that's exactly where he's headed. Now, I don't want you all driving down the road just to blurt out, go to hell, because, you know, people will not understand. (laughs) But if you are under attack, if Satan is coming at you, if you are feeling guilt and sin and despair and all the stuff is weighing you down, turn around to Satan and say, look, I'm not going to be where you're going to be for eternity, off my back. In Christ who is represented by both the sacrificial goat and the scapegoat, listen, you have won. You've won. I won. What do we have to be afraid of? Why do we worry? Thursday night, Frank and Sharon and Harlan Tracy and Russ and I were over at home of some friends. Some of you know... uh, Barry and, and Lana Butler. And Barry has cancer and it's very advanced. Again, his prostate cancer uh, moved ultimately into his brain. He is in a wheelchair. The doctor sent him home because there's nothing else they can do. And Barry was there and Lana's wife and their, their son Boone and his girlfriend 
and one of the uh, caretakers write for him. And we sang some songs and shared communion together. And as we were talking that night, uh, Lana said something she had heard on the radio from a radio preacher, and it was so powerful. She said, you know, what I heard today is that we are not in the land of the, lo- of the living, headed for the land of the dying. We are in the land of the dying, headed for the land of the living. And we have won. God, thank you so much for the blessing of your grace. And it seems like we've just returned to this discussion about your blood, Jesus, over and over, week after week, for several weeks in a row here. And yet, this truth, this reality is so powerful, we have got to get it. Father, I know people have been under spiritual attack. I know I have myself. The struggles coming from Satan, introducing doubt and worry, fear for the future. What's going to happen? These are not the things that you desire your children to be concerned with. So God, I pray that you would equip us with the full armor that we might wear truth. Lord, that we might put on righteousness, the gospel of peace and salvation and faith and the word and prayer. And then equipped with these things, anytime a fiery dart comes flying through the window, we can turn and claim victory. Victory not not because of our power, Father. We are so weak and fallen and lost without you. But it is your blood, your blood that has saved us, Jesus. And we praise you and thank you for that perfect, precious, pure blood that gives us this kind of confidence and even authority to stand in the land of the dying and look forward to the land of the living. Father, I pray this morning that you will bless those who are feeling attacked, those who are suffering from a way to pass sin or or from doubts or worry that have crept in. For those who are feeling, Father, oppressed. And those, Lord, as Barb was praying earlier, who, who are just afraid to come out into your light. They're afraid to come out from hiding. Afraid of even repentance, Lord, for fear that maybe someone would find out about the sin in their lives. God, strip these things away from us. Shine the light of truth into this place that we might receive it. And as brothers and sisters, we might stand clean 